Welcome to the Pubs Podcast. This is brought to you by the University of Pennsylvania's Undergraduate Biotech Society, and our student-run podcast is dedicated to biotech, business, and breakthroughs. With each episode, we will delve deep into the latest innovations across the industry, bringing our own insights and finding inspiration from our guests. My name is Zoom Tan. Today's podcast will focus on diagnostic and point-of-care technology, here today is our special guest, Dr. King Wong, an associate professor of pathology and laboratory medicine at PennMed. Her clinical work focused on making sure diagnostic results are delivered accurately and in a timely manner for patients at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Her research interests have been something particularly useful when facing a novel virus like SARS-CoV-2. Dr. Wong, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you. Could you start us off by giving a brief introduction on yourself, your background, and the diagnostic tools microbubbling assay you're working on? Yeah, definitely, Zhang. Thanks for having me. So I wear several different hats here at Penn. Um, On the clinical side, I um, am a medical director of the core clinical lab here, which serves the inpatients and outpatients of the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. So it's a pretty comprehensive uh, clinical lab that's clear certified, which basically means we provide all the diagnostic testing for all the inpatients, outpatients here seen in the um, health system here at Penn. Um, So in that capacity, I oversee um, a volume of clinical diagnostic testing that reports about 10 million test results per year. Um, And also I'm I'm part of the point of care, involved in the point of care um, testing program here um, at HAP as well. So we report there about 3 million test results on a yearly basis. So um, my clinical responsibility basically is to make sure that we provide accurate and timely diagnostic results for the patient uh, testing, for the patient care. Um, and then um, my, the other hat I wear is that I run a translational research lab that is founded by you know, government agencies, including NIH and NSF and other foundations, as well as internal funding to develop innovative um, technologies uh, that are mostly focused on diagnostic innovations so that we can provide newer, better um, diagnostic technologies to to people who are in need. Uh, So that's the second hat I wear. And then finally, um, in order to eventually turn the research discoveries from my research lab into something that can be used in, in the clinical practice in the end. I founded, um, I founded a startup company called Instanosis at the end of 2019. So that's the third hat I'm wearing, which is the founder of a startup company um, that's a spin out um, from Penn. So that's my self-introduction. Um, and your second question was uh, specifically regarding the microbubbling technology, is that right? Yes. So um, the microbubbling digital assay, which is uh, one of the technologies we're working in the research lab right now, uh, essentially uh, uh, born out of um, our, our vision back in, I think, 2018, 2019, before the pandemic. So during my clinical practice, essentially what we saw 
uh, was that um, there is uh, no um, diagnostic technologies that can offer high sensitivity biomarker detection quantitation, but at the same time can be available in the point of care testing um, setting. In other words, uh, very low cost and very convenient to use and offer very robust quantitation and very accurate results at the same time. So there is essentially a blank in that space um, but there is definitely a need for people to have access to those kind of technologies as we have witnessed in the current pandemic. For example, people want to have access to highly sensitive COVID testing, but at the same time, also very convenient and low cost and easily accessible at home or in the community or in the school settings. So um, that vision sort of prompted us to think about um, technologies we can develop in the research lab to, to meet that clinical need. So um, I think in 2018, 2019, we were able to um, develop uh, this technology called the microbubbling digital assay, essentially as a digital ELISA that use microbubbles as a reading uh, readout signal to eventually um, quantitate and detect and quantitate the biomarker concentration. So uh, the publication was, uh, the finding or the discovery was um, published um, in 2019. And then we subsequently uh, developed appli different applications using that technology. And then in 2019, as everybody knows, we go into the um, COVID-19 pandemic and we pivoted to use that technology for COVID-19 rapid antigen detection with high sensitivity and was able to develop that application and eventually also submitted um, FDA UA application for that. That's really interesting. Um, and as you mentioned, the microbubbling assays previous work, can you walk us through a little of the timeline of your research from the beginning to like what you're working on right now? Sure, um, I'll try to be as detailed as I can. If I miss any details, feel free to let me know. So as I mentioned before, our, um, our initial vision came, um, I think around 2018, 2019-ish, where we feel there was a clinical need and we started to work on um, discovery, technology discovery to try to meet that clinical need. Um, so that took us about um, a year or so, <clears throat> and um, by the summer of 2019, um, we have the um, uh, essentially all the data ready to be published, and that included the proof of principle of the technology itself by using microbubbling as the readout signal. Um, and we also developed a clinical application for that. So in the very beginning, we were focusing on using PSA as a prostate cancer recurrence biomarker for um, patients who are diagnosed with prostate cancer, uh, but are undergoing um, regular routine PSA monitoring to detect any prostate cancer recurrence. So in that setting, uh, the patient's benefit and the urologist's benefit from having a, a very high sens sensitivity PSA assay available to, to tell or to predict uh, whether a uh, cancer recurrence may be happening. So we developed a PSA, um, ultra-sensitive PSA application using the microbubbling technology and using that as a proof of principle to prove that in the clinical setting, we can offer 
uh, the same accuracy as the state-of-the-art technology used in the core clinical lab right now, but we can offer much higher sensitivity compared to uh, the current um, clinical assay being used. So that um, proof of principle data was published uh, in the summer, I think in August issue of Andrew and Jimmy um, in August of 2019. Um, so that was mid uh, 2019. So we can continue to develop the technology after that, uh, looking for uh, more um, applications to, uh, to, de to develop using the same technology. Um, and then, you know, in early, 2020, um, we all know that uh, in March of 2020 was when the lockdown for COVID-19 happened. Uh, so we also went into the same lockdown. The research lab was closed. Uh, the clinical lab, of course, was still in full operation because we need to still meet the patient needs there. Um, but we were not able to work in the research lab for, for some time. But in the very beginning of the pandemic, I realized we can pivot our technology um, to be used for COVID-19 detection. It was very clear in the beginning that there was going to be two different um, methods to um, detect the virus. One is to use nucleic acid, and the other is to use um, antigen assay. And then the antibody assay, uh, we all know that, you know, not right now, I think everybody knows that it is more useful for epidemiology purposes to detect exposure to COVID-19. There was some initial discussion using the antibodies in the beginning of the pandemic, but I think that quickly became very clear that um, the nucleic acid detection and the antigen detection would be the two major ways to go. So it quickly occurred to me that we can use our, uh, we, can, we can leverage the ultra high sensitivity feature of the microbubbling technology to detect um, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 antigen. Um, unfortunately, as I mentioned, we were not able to go into the research lab to test that hypothesis. So we waited for some time, tried to, you know, um, do some work uh, in, the, in the meantime uh, for which we had to submit uh, requests to, to different levels of department, to uh, the schools, um, and also to the C Nanotechnology Center, which we were using at that time. And still we continue to use it for fabrication of the microbubbling devices uh, for the assay. So we were eventually able to um, do some research in the research lab uh, and eventually pitched all our um, lab members to the project uh, and was able to also secure some patient samples um, to also test how the performance of the technology is on clinical samples. Uh, securing clinical samples was a, also a very a, a challenge, I, I would like to say, in the very beginning of the pandemic, because we were, you know, the clinical operation was just so focused on providing care for the patients at that time. So the very limited resources in the beginning, because everybody knows that the testing or the diagnostic, clinical diagnostics uh, was um, a little bit slow to start in the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and there were also logistics and supplies challenges. So we were all learning as we go and the limited diagnostic resources in the very beginning had to be focused entirely on the patient care. So 
securing the patient sample in the very beginning was uh, a little bit of a challenge for us as well. But um, you know, I'm glad because we um, we have um, one of, one of our feet essentially in the clinical lab here, so we were able to quickly secure collaboration. Uh, on the clinical lab side, and I was able to um, get some clinical samples to test. And I was also very glad to see that the technology indeed um, were highly was highly sensitive in detecting the COVID antigen. And from there, I think it became more clear that we could play some useful role in the diagnostics for COVID-19 um, and continue to uh, drill down uh, to characterize the performance of the technology uh, fulfilled all the required the data requirements for FDA UA uh, application um, and was able to um, submit the application, um, I think in the fall winter uh, months of um, 2020. Um, so that's, um, you know, that's, that's the sort of um, nutshell of what we did for, for the, um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 detection using the technology. You know, we were able to publish a clinical validation study um, using the samples we just talked about, uh, including over 400 patients in our clinical study to prove that the technology can, can be as sensitive as the, um, the uh, standard PCR, RT-PCR tests out there, but also at the same time can be much faster um, and much more convenient to use than the central lab nucleic acid tests. So um, that's the, I think that's the story around uh, the SARS-CoV-2 diagnostics. And today in the lab, we continue to um, work on the technology from several different aspects, including the assay itself, um, and also the automated platform to make it more user-friendly and robust. And finally, the um, algorithm, the uh, machine learning based algorithm that, that Zhang, you are an integral part of and have made significant contributions to, uh, we are um, working on all those aspects to try to further develop uh, the technology. Um, yes, that's great to hear. It's a very inspiring process for sure. Um, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, we know there are a variety of COVID tests we have on the market right now. And um, you mentioned antigen tests. And how do you think uh, antigen tests would make a difference compared to the existing um, testing methods we have? So there are, in general, um, three large categories, as uh, alluded to before, for SARS-CoV-2 diagnostics. Um, there is nucleic acid uh, detection. Um, there is also um, antigen detection. And then finally, uh, there is um, antibody diagnostics. So as I mentioned before, for diagnosing acute infections or to tell if somebody has been actively infected with the virus, there are mostly just the two um, kinds we mentioned, um, the nucleic acid and the antigen. Uh, tests both detect the virus itself. Uh, the difference is that they target where they focus on different components of the virus, one on the genome material and the other on the uh, protein components of the virus. Um, so uh, could you clarify your question on what specific uh, aspects you are looking to, to um, delve into for the two kinds of diagnostics? Yeah. Um 
I guess my question is just like, what are the improvements of the antigen test um, compared to other testing methods? Right. So um, if you are meaning you're talking about the microbubbling antigen test in the lab, yeah. then compared to the current two tests, the routine tests we just mentioned, uh, the nucleic acid tests, uh, the bulk of them are available only in the central lab, like a sophisticated lab, like what we have at Penn, uh, because they do require quite sophisticated instrumentation and experienced operator who know how to do the nucleic acid extraction, amplification detection on that piece of uh, equipment. So um, that's why most of the nucleic, nucleic acid testing is only available in a hospital lab or a central lab like ours. There are some point of care uh, nucleic acid detecting, uh, detection um, devices out there, which are also FDA UA approved. Um, they are relatively easy to perform. Uh, they are you know, sort of compact and can be portable, uh, but usually the price point is quite high. It takes hundreds of dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars to still um, have access or perform one of those tests. Um, on the other hand, the routine, the rapid antigen test available on the market right now, which you know, we can all purchase from CVS, Walgreens, the pharmacies, and also there is a, a federal program that's mailing these rapid antigen kits to, um, to, to the households who would like to have them. So those are the rapid antigen tests. They are very easy to perform. They're relatively inexpensive to, to, um, to purchase. So typically ranging from about $15 to $30 a piece. Um, and they provide results in about 15 to 20 minutes. And some may require up to 30 minutes. Um, so the downside, so the advantage, as I mentioned before, is that they are um, convenient. They are um, uh, broadly deployable. The downside in the rapid antigen test is that they are less sensitive as compared to the PCR or nucleic acid tests. And therefore, for somebody who, is, uh, who has just been acutely infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, you may not be able to detect the presence of the antigen using the rapid antigen test right away in, in the first several days. Uh, because there is just not enough antigen in the body for the uh, lateral flow test to, to detect. So the difference between our uh, microbubbling antigen test with the nucleic acid test is that we are rapidly deployable, we are convenient, we can produce results in uh, less than 15 minutes. Um, so it's, it's rapid, it has the same convenience factor as the rapid antigen test, However, in terms of sensitivity, it has the same sensitivity as the, um, as the nucleic acid test and that's only available in the central lab. So if you um, look at the uh, various kinds of nucleic acid tests out there, they all have different sensitivities. Some of them uh, can detect a virus, let's say with 10 to the fifth copies per mil sensitivity. Some of them may be uh, able to detect less than 100 copies per mil virus. So we have a sensitivity about 4,000 copies per mil, which is comparable to some of the high sensitivity RT-PCR tests. So in summary, I think we can see um, the, uh, advantage, the advantages or unique, uniqueness of the microbubbling antigen assay is that 
we can combine the sensitivity of the PCR test with the convenience of the rapid antigen test. Um, that's really interesting. Now that the impact of COVID-19 is subsiding, what do you see as the future of our technology? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so for the technology, it's really a broadly adaptable platform. In the beginning, when we were developing the technology, we did not envision using it for COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, of course. Um, but you know, it just happened, happened to be a very good fit for the virus detection purpose. So going forward, I think we are continuing exploring the different, many different applications we can apply the technology platform to. So we are continuing developing other applications, including clinical applications uh, and other more um, uh, generic research um, applications as well that can be used in the research settings. So we're looking, um, we're looking to work with different collaborators to develop different um, applications for the technology and hope to bring uh, the capability of the technology to many more uh, different settings. That's great. Um, hearing the wide applications of your technology, I'm just wondering if you're looking into commercializing or bringing your technology to the market anytime soon. Yeah, so commercialization is definitely something we look forward to and are actively working on. As I mentioned before, the goal of our research eventually is to be able to translate these uh, research discoveries or technologies into, um, into a um, uh, applicable product, uh, either in clinical practice or for general public use. So for that, um, the startup company I founded, which is called Instanosis, uh, is mainly, is ma is mainly uh, serving that purpose, trying to commercialize this technology to, uh, to an eventual, uh, eventual product that can be commercialized. Yeah, I think that's really great to hear. Um, so what are some of the hardest decisions you've had to make as an entrepreneur um, like when you decide to bring this product um, to the market? Yeah, that's again a great question. Um, I think, you know, um, I'm a scientist by training, I'm a pathologist, a clinical scientist by training. So uh, for sure, entrepreneurship is something that I'm very interested in, but very uh, uh, new um, on the journey for. So as I embark on this journey, I think one of the first challenge or first important thing, things for me to, to look at or to work on is to build a team of people who would be an integral part of this commercialization journey and would be able to eventually translate this into a successful commercial product. So to do that, I think we need more expertise, more skills beyond what we have and what we usually um, um, use for uh, either a clinical service or for um, for uh, research um, for the research setting. So, um, you know, building up the team with various people uh, with different expertise, different background, especially with commercialization experience and passion to bring us forward uh, to the to the final market launch. I think that's one of the biggest challenge, but also one of the biggest opportunities facing, facing me at this point. 
I know like at Penn, there are a lot of us who are studying science, but also hope to realize our ideas as well as bringing our products um, to wider use. What would your one piece of advice to young entrepreneur in college or specifically at Penn be? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, one piece of advice. Yeah, let me think about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, I, I think that's great. And that a lot of young people, I know I have um, gotten in touch with many students here that have expressed interest um, in entrepreneurship and uh, with similar passion to translate their vision or their, you know, discoveries into, um, into a product that can impact uh, people's life. I think that's a great biggest advice I've tried to adhere to in the past is, is to um, be able to observe the unmet need from very early on. In other words, you know, people sometimes think just build the product or build, build the technology and um, you know, they, they will come uh, and the product or the technology will eventually be successful, which is not necessarily true. Um, so I think one key advice is to be observant of the amenities around you, whatever you, wherever you, you would be, you know, in a, in a research lab or in a clinical setting or in a routine life, uh, be observant of the needs around you and think about the possible solutions, uh, unique solutions that you may be able to provide to meet those needs. I think that um, uh, would be very useful and would serve you in the long term. I think that's a really great advice. Um, and that also concludes our interview today. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, it was great to get to learn about your project and hopefully in the future, we'll get to collaborate with you. Um, and thank you so much once again. Yeah, great. Thank you Zan, for this opportunity. Again, you know, we welcome, always welcome anybody who is interested in either the technology or the opportunity to work in the um, intersection between clinical science, uh, research, um, and entrepreneurship. Anybody who is interested in these areas, please feel free to reach out to me. Thank you so much for the time today. To our listeners, thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. To health, wealth, and knowledge, and we'll see you next time.